Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. John chapter 1. Verse 14, Father, we love the word, and we love being with you, and we love your dear son, and we ask that you would show us Jesus, that we would fall in love with him afresh, that we would, re- we would remember that we would see our Savior. Lord, we would be strong in these days, not afraid, not living bunkered. We would be strong and full of joy, and we would be following Jesus Christ. So would you, Lord Jesus, show yourself through the word, open the word to us, and let us see you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. We're going through the Gospel of John, and uh, I'm going to, we've been working our way through this, these first uh, 18 verses that uh, he opens the Gospel with, explaining who Jesus is, and we've seen that Jesus is the divine son who spoke the worlds into being. We've seen that he came and he dwelt among us. And today I, I, want, us to, I want to look at the, the verses, verse 14 down through verse 17. So here we go. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, Full of grace and truth. Would you say full of grace and truth? Say it again. Full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Would you say grace upon grace? grace? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Say grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look at our text. I look forward to the day when I meet Jesus face to face. Sure, I'm curious to see what he looks like. Are the scars still there? What does his voice sound like? Does he look like the pictures the artists draw, or will I be surprised? But more than that, I can hardly wait to meet him as a person. No, I won't be meeting a stranger. I'll be meeting a dear friend, someone who's been with me all my life. But still, I I want to look at him, hug him, and tell him how grateful I am for everything he's done. Are you looking forward to that day? I mean, it's really coming, you know. He, He meets us. And I I can hardly wait to see him. And then I want to step back and watch and listen and just observe him. And I want to meet his disciples, the people who knew him during the years he walked among us as a man. I want to hear their stories about the miracles he performed. But even more than that, the question I really want to ask them was, what was he like? Tell me about the person you walked beside for three and a half years. I want to ask his mother, what was he like as a boy growing up in Nazareth? 
thankfully, those who wrote the gospel recorded many of their memories about him. But in the few verses we're reading today, one of his closest disciples actually answers my heartfelt question. He describes the character of Jesus. He tells us about the man he remembers. Let's listen carefully because John is going to give us a glimpse of the person we'll meet in heaven. And I want to take you through some of those verses that we've just just read together. John has said, and the word became flesh. Who's the, who's the word? Why, why does John call him the word? Not because of some Greek philosophy. Very simple. Because through him, God spoke the worlds into existence. He was there when all creation began. We're not talking about a created being when we talk about Jesus. We're not talking about a man upon whom the God's spirit descended. We are talking about someone who was there when the very universe, spiritual as well as physical, he says all this, I'm not saying this, spiritual as well as physical were spoken into being. So the one who spoke it all suddenly put on, he says, a tabernacle of flesh. He tented among us. You know the tabernacle in the wilderness? Inside that tabernacle was this, was this, was this brilliant light of God. It was called the, called the Shekinah light of God. It, it, it's the very presence. Inside that dwelt that glory, that glorious light. And John says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled. That's, he didn't say dwelled. He says tented tabernacled among us that glory came and even as it came in the wilderness and dwelt in that tent the son of God came and dwelt in a tent of human flesh and we watched John says like spectators in a theater that's the word he uses his glory glory as of an only begotten from a father full of grace and truth Having just used the image of the tabernacle to illustrate how God's son clothed himself in human flesh, John then selects another word associated with the tabernacle to illustrate how Jesus' spirit dwelled inside his flesh. Of course, John writes all of this in Greek. He himself was not a Greek, but he was a Jew. Raised in the language and concepts of the Old Testament. So when he speaks of glory, he's thinking of the Hebrew word for glory, kavod. As a biblical term, it was occasionally used to mean God's reputation, but far more often it referred to the fiery light which radiates from his divine nature. Isn't that a cool word? Why don't you you try it? Kavod. Yeah. It it literally means, in Hebrew, weight. That's why you get the term weight of glory, the eternal weight of glory, that the presence of God becoming so strong and so heavy on a place. And the fiery light that you see when you see him. In Exodus 40, 34 through 38, Moses describes the moment when the spirit of God entered the tabernacle, which had been constructed for him. He said, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory, there's that word that John's thinking of, the kavod of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Notice it's God's glory, uh, kavod, that fills the interior of the tent. This is the same glory that rests 
on the top of Mount Sinai and which left Moses' face shining after, the, after speaking with God. Remember that glory? That great, that great cloud of light that came down on top of Mount Sinai? Moses went up into it for 40 days and he, was talk, he talked with the Lord. And at that one point he said, I want to see your glory. And God says, I can't do that. I'll, I, I, I'd fry you like a bug, but, I, but I, will put you, I will put you in the cleft of a rock and let you see my glory as it passes away, passes by. And what did it do to Moses? Left his skin radiant. <laughs> that's, that's, that's power, huh? That's light, yeah. That's the glory John's talking about. We beheld his glory, his kavod. We, we beheld this glorious light of God. On the top of Mount Sinai, which left Moses' face shining with, after speaking with God. And it's the same glory the prophet Ezekiel saw in his visions. He watched the divine glory accompanied by cherubim riding on a throne, having human shape, bearing the, very strongly the character of light, leaving the first temple and returning to a new temple during the messianic age. We were just, we just a few weeks ago, were driving on the Mount of Olives, the very place. We drove right by where Ezekiel says, I watched the glory leave the temple. He went out the door and it left and it stood on the top of the Mount of Olives and departed. We, we were there. Ichabod, the glory hath departed. What a terrible term. What a terrible term. The glory hath departed. But Ezekiel in his vision sees that glory that in, in a, as a person. But it's a glorious light. Come back into the new messianic temple. And John is telling us that Jesus possessed that same glory. That he and others saw Jesus' glory with their own eyes and that what they saw convinced them he was divine. It was exactly what you would expect to see from, he, from, he says, the Father's only begotten Son. He doesn't mention when this event took place, but Peter does. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory, there it is, from God the Father, such, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What mountain is he talking about? Okay. I'm just waiting to see if you can get in your hallway. The Mount of Transfiguration. That's Mount, it's Mount Hermon is where, is where this was. It was up in Caesarea Philippi. You remember this? Do I? You remember? I will tell, I will tell you the story again. Remember, he's up there in Caesarea Philippi, and it says he took, he took three of his disciples. Who was it? Peter, James, and John. And they went up on the high mountain, and it says, and he was transfigured before them. And, and, and I, one of the gospels says, and his clothes shine as bright, whiter than any launderer can get them. <laughs> I love that. You know, that's, that's, that's a, and, and, and it, he, he radiated light. I'm not, I want you to see that one. Let's, let's go with me. Um, go to Matthew 17. We, I have no idea where it was on that mountain, but we just drove over one of the low shoulders of it. 
and it's a mountain range, and it's, it's, uh, snow, it's got snow in it even when we were there. It's, uh, it's 9,000, I think, 200 and some feet high uh, at its highest peak. Verse, uh, look at verse 2. Let's start at verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain. They're right up there by um, Mount Hermon when they did this. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Now picture that in your mind. His face is just radiant. They're, they're watching Jesus. They're standing there, and suddenly this, he begins to radiate this, this, this glorious kavod, this shining divine light. He, he just, they can, they're, they're like this. They can't look at him. His, 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 his clothes, his face begin to just radiate this brilliant light. That's what they're seeing. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared. Remember this? And uh, then Peter wants to make three, three tents for them all. You know, and, and uh, good old Peter, he's practical. And, and then it says, verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud, there it is, just like on Mount Sinai, overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the disciples heard this, and they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. All right, let's, let's go back. So do you see it? John is saying, we've, we've seen his glory. Peter, Peter says, we saw it when we were there with him on the mountain. And then a bright cloud covered them and all, and all, and a voice spoke out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Just as the brilliant light of God's presence dwelled inside the tabernacle in the wilderness, the spirit of God's son dwelled inside a tent of human flesh. On at least one occasion, Peter, James, and John had seen that glorious light radiating from Jesus. But as they watched him over the years, they observed another kind of glory as well. They saw in him the character of God. His words, his actions, and his attitudes were their own kind of light. As a person, Jesus radiated the heart of God as surely as he radiated the light of God. And there were two qualities that stood out above all the rest. They were grace and truth. If you were to ask John or any of the disciples to describe the man they remembered, the first two things they would say about him is that he was full of grace and truth. Would you say grace and truth again? See, here's John. He's describing the, he's describing the word became flesh. And he says, and we beheld his glory. And what did we see? And it's two words he brings out and he repeats them. We saw, when we saw him, We saw grace and truth. Let's look more closely at those two qualities. First of all, grace. And if you want to get started, we're going to go to Mark chapter 4. In the New Testament, the word grace, the word charis, is used to describe God's mercy towards sinners and his willingness to do acts of kindness for people who do not deserve them. And those who knew Jesus said he was full of grace there are so many examples in the Gospels of him caring for the, kind of, for the kind of people others would have passed by that it's hard to choose just one, but it would be difficult to find a greater example than his ministry to the demonically 
tortured man who lived among the tombs on the east side of the lake. How do you pick an example of Jesus showing mercy to undeserving people? His entire ministry was that. And yet this one, when I look him over, this one is just remarkable. We also get to go to a place when we go to Israel where somewhere close this happened. So I can even see the hillside right nearby. I know where the town was that he probably lived in their, in their uh, cemetery. You've got a man who's, who's raving and screaming among the tombs. Many of us know this story very well, but tend to focus our attention on the demonized man. Actually, we tend to focus on the pigs. We picture 2,000 of them crashing down the hillside and into the lake and drowning. There's even a sign on the highway that this is probably where the pigs went in. You know, and where everybody's going, oh, man. Of all the sights you want to see in Israel, where do the pigs fly? Yeah. They probably just ran into the lake. It's not a real good cliff there for them. But this time, let's watch Jesus. The whole event was quite an ordeal for him. Why don't you have it open? I'm going to tell you the story, but I want you to have it so you can, you can kind of follow along a little bit. Mark chapter 4, and I'll start at verse 35. Let me read some of it. So you just, I guess I will read some. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took along with them in the boat, just as he was, took him along, and the other boats were with them. So they start sailing from, from the northwest uh, side of the lake. It's, a, it's about six miles across. They start sailing to the east. And uh, other boats apparently are coming along, and they rose a fierce gale while we were there. Uh, a, a contrary wind, a strong east wind came in from the desert. We actually saw it the, mor- the morning we woke up and drove in, in the bus. And I was, I was just fascinated watching this, this strong east wind that I've read about so many times. It had been a, a few days before, they had had a wind on that lake so strong, it was 80 miles an hour. We were down, clear down south, thinking everything was great. We'd had a little wind down there, but nothing like that. They had 80 mile an hour winds on the Sea of Galilee just the, the day or so before, day before I think we got there. Um, how's that for a storm? Okay, so do they come up? Oh, oh, yeah. oh yeah, just did. Um, so there's no question this stuff happens. This arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was on the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and, and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's go back to our text. Let's watch Jesus. The whole event was quite an ordeal for him. His assignment was to go across the lake and set one man free. 
As soon as he started, demonic opposition rose up immediately and tried to drown him. He was so physically exhausted at the time that he slept through the storm until his disciples woke him and accused him of being selfish and loveless. Did you notice? How would you like that? You're so tired you can't stay awake in a storm. And they wake you up and say, don't you care? Oh, no, I just don't care that you all drowned, you know? What a, what, a, what a way to be wakened. What a thing to say to him. Don't you care? So they accuse him of being selfish and loveless, of not caring if they died. And he stood and rebuked the spiritual source that had sent the wind. Notice he rebuked it. He didn't, he, this isn't his power over water. This is his spiritual authority over the demonic thing that has come to keep him from getting to the east side of the lake. You follow this? There's a man there. His, he is an assignment. Go over and set him free. The minute he turns toward this demon-infested man, this, the, the, the spirits rise up and there is a ferocious wind to drive him back or drown him and prevent him from getting to the east side of the lake. It's a warfare. He knows that. Stands up, rebukes it, and turns to them and, go, and says... Where's your faith? What's the matter with you? He's been trying to train them. And their immaturity is just glaring. He, he stood and rebuked the spiritual source that had sent the wind. And then turned and had to face the immaturity that was still present in his own disciples. The faithless way they handled this crisis showed how far they still had to go. And then when they reached the other side, he stepped out of the boat and pathetically, a pathetically demonized man who had been running through the nearby graveyard, screaming and gashing himself with stones, who was still dragging behind him broken chains that people had used to try to bind him, saw him and come, came running out of the hills and fell at his feet. The monstrous presence within him bellowed out of his mouth, begging for mercy, but Jesus didn't recoil in fear or disgust. Instead, he compassionately inquired as to the identity of the demons and then permitted the entire infestation to fly into a nearby herd of pigs, which then stampeded into the lake. His reward for this great deed was to have the entire community beg him to leave. First, he instructed the man to go home and tell others what had happened to him. And then without saying an angry word about that crowd's loveless indifference to the fact that one of their own was being given back to them whole and in his right mind, he left quietly. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes. What an experience. Can you imagine stepping out of a boat, standing on the shore, and this guy who's you know, it occurred to me why he was gashing himself. This man has been living in the, in the graveyard. And it's a pagan graveyard. On, the, on that side of the lake was Gentile territory. It wasn't Jewish territory. And one of the things pagans do, they still do in lots of, lots of places in the world, is they'll put food on their graves for the dead. You'll have oranges, and I've seen soda pop. I've seen beer. I mean, I've seen all kinds of stuff on people's graves, and they're feeding the dead. Well, he's going through and eating the stuff that people leave for their dead spirits. Why did he gash himself? Get out. 
get out. He's tearing at himself, trying to get rid of this stuff. Have you ever seen people demon-possessed, harassed, tormented? Boy, yes, you have, whether you know it or not. And, 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 and the, the, the man was just screaming in misery. And who heard him? The heart of the father heard and said, and said, son, I need you to go over there. You got to set him free. He's crying out, gashing himself, trying to cut them out of him. Go over. So Jesus, the minute he gets in the boat, storm hits, rebukes the storm, gets out. It doesn't even really say the man, the man came running up to him and, and, and fell. But on the way, Jesus spots it. He doesn't even ask Jesus. Jesus can read the whole situation and is commanding the thing out of him even as he's coming toward him. The man falls. This thing speaks. Have you ever heard one speak? I have. It's not pleasant. Makes your flesh crawl. This is an ugly event. This isn't cool. This is nasty. He's got this thing talking. He commands it out. It goes into the pigs, all of that. And the man is now in his right mind. Peaceful. And everybody is furious. And says, get out of here. Get away from us. Get in your boat and go. That's his thanks. John watched all of this happen. He was there somewhere beside Jesus. And the encounters left such a deep impression on him. Yes, he, was, he surely marveled at the power he saw at work. One command and 2,000 demons fled. No one forgets a moment like that. But what moved him even more deeply was the unearthly kindness in this Jesus of Nazareth. Who else would go to such lengths and endure such rejection for one man who was so far gone he had almost lost his humanity? And he was a Gentile, not even a Jew. He was the lowest, most unwanted individual in the entire region. Yet they had endured a life-threatening storm and had been begged to leave for their efforts. Years later, when he looked back on that event, and many like it, what John remembered most was the amazing love Jesus felt for broken, sinful people. The word he would use later on to try to describe that quality in Jesus was grace. Would you say grace? grace. Isn't that a powerful word? Because Jesus is now showing us grace, not just theologically defining it with synonyms. Jesus is modeling. This is what grace looks like. Grace isn't just some theological term about your sins being uh, forgiven. Grace is when, when you wade into the needs of people. When you don't look at the, at the outward circumstances, but you look at the human being. And you go after it. And you love them. You know what happened when he got back? He got back in the boat and went back to Capernaum. And no sooner did he get there than the crowd meets him on the shore. And the synagogue ruler 
arrives and says, my child is dying, come. Now the synagogue rulers had not been fond of him. And he says, I'll come with you. And on the way, a woman who's been issuing blood for 12 years grabs through the crowd and lays hold of him, his, his robe, probably his prayer shawl. And she's healed. In the middle of all this, you know, they're shoving and pushing. He says, who did that? She's terrified. Peter says, what do you mean, who did that? You know, who touched? And, and, and you've got all of this going on. This is his life. This is what he did. Day in and day out. Truth. Would you turn with me to John 13? Verse 21. The word truth literally means not forgotten. When a person tells the truth, it means they've not forgotten what they saw, heard, or promised. They faithfully declare the message or fact which had been entrusted to them without changing it in any way. And they faithfully do what they said they would do. Something that is true contains no lies or errors. Someone who is true is authentic, genuine, and reliable. And along with grace, the quality John remembered most about Jesus was truth. Again, how do you pick from all the many times Jesus modeled integrity? He was a man who said what he meant and meant what he said. He was never manipulative or deceptive. Stop there a second. How many religious leaders are manipulative? And Jesus was never manipulative. Nothing he did was some kind of gimmick or game. It was totally genuine. When he spoke something, he meant it. He didn't lie. He didn't shade a thing. He didn't exaggerate. He simply was who he was. And, and when John, I think John writes this about 40 years later. When John thinks back and goes, who's the man I knew? He says, grace. But he says, and truth. And truth. He was never manipulative or deceptive. He was honest. To such a degree, it often got him in trouble. He wouldn't turn aside from doing what was right, even when he knew he was walking into a trap. He completely believed what he taught, and he lived what he believed. I think there was a moment, no, there was no moment in Jesus' life which could have shown this to John more clearly than the, than the night in which Jesus was betrayed. During the Passover meal in the upper room, Jesus announced that one of them was going to report his location to the religious authorities so they could arrest him. Peter had motioned to John, who was sitting next to Jesus, to ask who it was, and Jesus knew it was Judas. Yet he made no effort to stop him as he left the room. Stop a second. You're sitting in this upper room, Jesus, they're having the Passover. This is that, that, that night in the upper room. Jesus says to them, one of you will betray me. 
Peter motions over to John. He says, So John leans over and says, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to give the bread to. It's in a Passover meal. You take a piece of bread, and one of the things you have there is bitter herbs. And so he, I think he, he took the bread and he dipped it in, in the bitter herbs. And he handed it to Judas. And talk about prophetic symbolism. Judas, what you're about to do is going to bring terrible bitterness. And it says when he did this, Judas, the demon, the, uh, the Satan in, infested him. He, his soul is soul right there. He just, he was angry. And then he says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas got up and left. Nobody knew why. They thought he was, he thought he was going out to buy stuff. Or, or make some kind of preparations. Now, if you were Jesus and you knew where he was going, wouldn't you have suggested, Peter, tackle him? You know, <laughs> tie him up. You know. Take him down. Or the minute he was out the door, come on, guys, we got to go. And you would have headed somewhere, wouldn't you have? What did he do? knowing that Judas was on his way to meet with the chief priests. Jesus went right on using every minute that was left to him to teach them and pray for them. Then when he knew his arrest would come at any moment, he didn't flee, but led them to the olive grove where they often camped and went apart to pray. John and the two others who were there could see the mental and spiritual stress he was under. Do you remember, you remember what it looked like? He said he, 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 he fell and he began to sweat like great drops of blood. He's going into a, a, a what is that, a stress reaction, some sort of horrible anxiety attack. It, you know, the, the, it's just pouring off of him and it may be, may be mixed with blood in it, I don't know. They're watching him traumatized uh, as, as he's apart praying, he, he knows what's going on. He knows what's going to happen to him. Again, to me, just to put it in there, I believe the greatest trauma of all was he, he knew that his assignment was to drink the cup of wrath. God's wrath against the sin of the world. He knew that he would now, for, at some point, become, come under the curse of God and that the, that the Spirit of the Lord would leave him and that he would be abandoned. And he would be moral, the moral equivalent of all of our sins. He'd be vile. That was the horror of it. The physical part was hideous. It was vicious. It was demonic. But the, but the, but the separation that was ahead of him. So he began to sweat and go into just this. And so bad that an angel came and had to care for him. So that he could go on. Or he wouldn't make it through the night. John and the two others who were there could see the mental and spiritual stress he was under. At times it appeared he would collapse, but he didn't. Instead, he stood, up, he stood waiting as the torches and footsteps moved toward them through the olive grove. He, he had said this was going to happen, 
but none of them believed him. He let them arrest him. He didn't run and he didn't fight because he believed the father was asking him to do this. John didn't abandon him like the others. He followed his rabbi as closely as he was allowed through the course of that horrible night. He even stood near the cross as he died. And years later, when he remembered the man he watched die, so bravely, so wonderfully, the word he would use to describe him was truth. No human has ever been put to a greater test. Yet Jesus remained the same consistent person, clear up to the moment when he released his spirit and died. He was authentic, genuine, and reliable. He was full of grace, meaning mercy, undeserved kindness, and truth. There was no deception or confusion in him. To his last breath, he was kind and completely honest. You want to test a person, drive nails into them and see how they react. He didn't curse. He didn't rage. He didn't scream in fear. What did he do? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. John's nearby. John's hearing this stuff. I mean, that'll stagger you. You want to know whether this, what's inside Jesus is, is, is who you see? He, his, his insides completely match his outside. Drive a nail into him, put, a, put, put thieves on either side, and they're mocking him. The man's been, had, had most, much of the flesh stripped off of him. He's in agony. And he leads the guy next to him into eternal life. He, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't, he, yes, he quotes Psalm uh, 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he's quoting a fabulous prophecy that speaks of him. And he was forsaken from noon to three, as far as I can see, in that darkness, he was cursed. He became a curse for us. Wow, it was horrible. But did he, did he ever change in his person? No. You saw Jesus from beginning to end. To his last breath, he was kind and completely honest, remembering us. That's how his disciples remembered Jesus. He was kind and honest. And someday when we see him face to face, that's what we'll notice as well. But until that day comes, you and I have an assignment to fulfill while we're still here on earth. We're to become like Jesus so that in the future, when people remember us, they'll say the same thing. They'll say, you know what I remember most when I think about, put, put it, your name there in that, that line. I remember how kind he or she was. I'm going to put Mary's name in. Not mine. Doesn't work well. <laughs> you know what I think about most when I remember, when I think about Mary? I remember how kind she was. She didn't care what I'd done. She looked past my brokenness. 
She was interested in me as a person and seemed to love everyone she met. And she could be trusted. She didn't lie or manipulate you. You were safe with her. You knew where you stood. And she so deeply believed in Jesus. It made you want to believe too. She wasn't perfect. She had her struggles. But she sure lived what she believed. I want them to say that about me. Do you? It's so easy to get lost in all the religious terms we use. But John simplifies it for us. Of all the many qualities we would like to have in our lives, the two that would make people think of Jesus the most are simple and practical. Above all else, we should seek to be kind and honest. In other words, full of grace and truth. Would you stand with me? That's our Lord. Isn't he beautiful? Is there someone else, anybody else like that? Anyone you'd follow? Anyone you'd trust? Of all the, all the people that have lived over all the centuries and millennia, of all the teachers and religious people, of all the voices, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him right into death. And following him might get you there too. I mean, sooner than later, sooner than later. As the world is going, it, who knows? But I trust him. I believe him. I love him. I want to be like him. Somebody said that people tend to become like the God they worshipped. And I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. Because that's who I want to be like. Heavenly Father, you have shown us yourself as we have seen the glory of your son. He has shown us you. For he is full of grace and truth. We ask, Lord, that you would cause in each of us who follow him that same kind of grace, that same loving of people and disregarding of the brokenness or the troubles in their lives, but to see the human being and care and be willing to go to any length to see people find you. Lord God, would we be such people? Would such love mark our lives? We ask also that we would be marked by truth, that we would indeed be honest, we would be integrous, we would be at home what we are at church. But our words in one place would be our words in another. Our attitudes in one place would be our attitudes in another. That no matter what pressure you put us under, that heart of Jesus Christ comes out. Lord, a lot of us would have to say that isn't true yet. But we would say to you in integrity, we do love you. And we do long for it. And we thank you, Jesus, for teaching us to put to death the flesh. And to walk in the spirit. And to be like you. Come Holy Spirit. And do a wonderful work. Is. Truth. And grace. Love. 
kindness, just practical, dear, raw kindness, and the kind of honesty that can get you in trouble, would you like those to mark your life? If so, would you say, yes, Lord? May I be known as a person. Go ahead. I know full of truth and grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. One more quick question. Would you bow your heads? I feel like I should ask this. I've just presented Jesus about as well as I know how. Anyone tonight, maybe you haven't made that decision that says, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him as my Lord and Savior. That's the person. I too, like you said, you're going to follow him no matter what, out of all the voices. I'm saying tonight, that's the one I'm going to follow. I'm following that Jesus Christ. He's beautiful. He's lovely. I trust him. That's the kind of Savior I want. And I want to receive him tonight and just confess him and say, Jesus Christ, you're my Lord and you're my Savior. All I'll do is agree with you. But anyone want to just raise your hand and say, I need to say that tonight. I want to say that tonight. He is my Lord and my Savior. Just give you one moment. Anyone want to just signal me with your hand? Just give you that opportunity. All right. Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we do thank you with all our hearts for showing us Jesus. We pray for that, that grace and truth to be worked deep in us. That we would be like Jesus. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.